A few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a link to a YouTube video. And you know, this is a very popular thing that friends do amongst friends. And uh, this one was called Avalokiteshwar Weeping. And Avalokiteshwar is the name of the deity of compassion, the god of compassion. And the Dalai Lama is considered the uh, embodiment of that compassionate god on the earth right now. And so in this video, the Dalai Lama was weeping. And he was it, was, it seemed like it was the beginning of a talk he was giving to uh, uh, a large retinue of monks and uh, disciples. They're usually, you know, 500 or 1,000 people that he's giving teachings to. And this teaching was on what's called the bodhicitta, which is the um, teaching on the altruistic mind where one cherishes others over themselves. This is the, this altruistic um, expression of, of compassion to relieve the suffering of all beings uh, and, and putting that in the forefront of, of one's motivation, of pure motivation. And so he was just beginning to say how fortunate it was for a lama to be able to give this kind of teaching and um, this altruistic mind. And just as he said that, he just started breaking down. And he was crying, and he was crying into his hands. And, and then he just stopped and carried on with his talk. There was such immense composure in his weeping. It wasn't even like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I kind of lost it. Um, you know, uh, let me just collect myself. <laughs> you know, he just weeped, and then he carried on. And it was so incredibly beautiful to see that there was just something in that moment that just touched him so deeply as he started to feel into that altruistic motivation, that way that is really possible for us as human beings to feel that much compassion for the suffering of beings in this world. And as he felt that, he just, he just cried. When he, when he felt into the immensity of the suffering and the pain. And we all know that the Dalai Lama sees this firsthand. You know, the Tibetan uh, refugees and pilgrims who come to him who have either fled Tibet or who have been tortured in Tibet, who um, have immense stories of pain uh, and cruelty and uh, loss that they bring to him. And he sits and he listens. And he does everything he possibly can to influence the situation in China and Tibet. It's his life's mission. Tremendous compassion. This is um, the uh, embodiment of Avalokiteshwar, this god of compassion. 
And the feminine embodiment of Avalokiteshvara is Kuan Yin. So you have both the, the masculine and the feminine deity. And it seems that, you know, Allison spoke last night about the Four Noble Truths and, you know, beginning with the truth of suffering. And when we really turn towards the way things are, wholeheartedly, we really practice this clear seeing, this really directly looking to see what's here, much of what we see is the suffering and the pain. And if we're able to stay present in a very clear way, this is what awakens our heart of compassion. It awakens the, 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 that, that beautiful wish that arises to alleviate the pain, whether it's our own pain or another person's. It's a natural flowing expression within our human heart to not want to see people suffer. So much of our practice is held with this kind of balance of the, of the wisdom teachings where we're really looking deeply into the way things are and cultivating insight and clarity, and, and, and that brings along with it the compassion. It's like you can't really have one without the other. You can't just see deeply into the nature of things without the compassion coming along next to it. They run par- they, they, they're, they're synchronistic together. So in our practice, we, we practice them together. We have wisdom teachings, we have insight, we see into the way things are, and we practice this great compassion. It's, it's absolutely necessary as we start to look more deeply into our own mind, into our own predicament, our own situation, to also cultivate the compassion. There's an abbess, uh, a Korean um, abbess in the seminary who looks after 300 Buddhist nuns. Her name is Myung Sung Sunim. And this is what she writes. It was in an interview with Martin Batchelor. She says, Great sadness means that when someone falls into a lot of suffering, we spend much energy to get them out of it. It also means that when sentient beings are sad, we are sad with them. When they cry, we also cry. Great love means that when sentient beings are happy, we are happy with them. Being sad together, being happy together, this is great compassion. Great love means that we give great happiness. Great sadness means that we deliver people from their suffering. And in some ways, sometimes our practice becomes very simple. Sometimes we think we have to attain all kinds of experiences and have certain kinds of things happen in our meditation, you know, have our mind not be so troublesome or our experiences to be clear and settled and easeful. But I don't really know if that's what this is really what this is about. <laughs> I don't think that what we're doing is trying to have certain experiences. And I think that that can really mislead us 
along the path. And what's so beautiful about this practice is that we more and more get to what this point, what the point of it is really about, which is this awakening, the awakening of wisdom and compassion, which are called the two wings of the bird, that, that a bird can't fly unless there are two wings, wisdom and compassion. So the bird of Buddhism. And so what we explore here, you might say in a particular kind of context, is what actually is interfering with this awakening of wisdom and compassion. What blocks that? What interferes with that, with that awakening? As Allison was pointing out last night, it's really when we see things as they are, which means, in these teachings, it means the revelation of the Four Noble Truths. To see things as they are means we see the Four Noble Truths. As she was saying in the first factor of the Eightfold Path, which is wise view, or wise understanding, what that means is, is the view of the Four Noble Truths, that we actually understand that there is suffering in this world, that's the first noble truth, and that the second noble truth, that there's a cause for that suffering, and the third, that there is a way out of that cause, we can let go of that cause of that suffering, and then the path to that way out of suffering. And this is really where we begin, you know? I mean, some people get a little bit frustrated with Buddhist practice because it's like so much about suffering, you know, suffering, 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 you know, it's like we're tired of suffering, (laughs) you know, it's so much dukkha and suffering, but you know, fortunately that isn't all it is, you know, it's also about the end of that, (laughs) you know, if it wasn't about the end of it, we'd all be in trouble, you know, as I've said a few times, but it seems that where there's no way around it. There's no way to avoid it. And so when we come and we sit and we look at our own mind and body, that's what we're going to see. And yet people, you know, it's, it's again and again, and of course I've seen it in myself, you know, we keep thinking that something's wrong if we see the suffering. <laughs> you know, I'm doing it wrong, or I see, you know, something, I'm wrong, or something's wrong, um, Maybe God is wrong, or the world is wrong, or you're wrong, or something's got to be wrong. <laughs> you know, we keep looking for someone or something to blame for the condition being the way it is, rather than opening up to that truth that there is suffering. And there is this dukkha, there is this unsatisfactory condition in this human condition, in this world. And so it's one, of the, it's one of the ways that as we practice, we start to turn our relationship to what's actually arising, and we see that the struggle, the struggle that we're constantly in to try to make things different, to fix them, to rescue, to change, is somewhat futile. It's, it's, it's really a way that we continue to reinforce the very thing that we're trying to stop. Again, it's sort of like the rat in the cage, you know, we're just going around and round and round. And at some point, 
we need to see that we need to let go of that struggle. You know, when, what does that, you know, what does that mean? And of course, that's not an easy thing to answer because that's each one of us have to look within our own minds and conditionings to see how that struggle manifests. How am I manifesting that struggle? Because we all have our own strategies to get away, to escape the pain, to try to change it, to try to fix it. Everyone has their own strategies. Sometimes we just deny it. We go into denial. Oh, everything's fine. There's no problem. I'm cool. No, nothing's going on. You know, just that kind of way, sort of a pretense where there's not only are we uh, hiding it from ourselves, but we're also hiding it from others. We don't want anyone to know, including me. (laughs) I don't even want to know how much, you know, pain I'm in. So we can kind of just go into a denial around it. We could kind of withdraw and become somewhat passive. Um, Just kind of be a little bit spacey or dull or tired or sleepy and sort of not really be here. Kind of be somewhat disconnected and disengaged and sort of just kind of walk through life in somewhat of an invisible way, not really engaging, not really being here. You know? Or we might just be angry. You know, just be angry all the time. Just angry about everything and a kind of a sense of uh, self-righteousness, self-righteous anger that everything's wrong and it shouldn't be like this and just that kind of state of anger. Or we might just go into the opposite where we're just kind of angry at ourselves again, you know, directing that back to ourselves and making ourselves wrong and being angry at ourselves and hating ourselves. And, you know, then it's all about me, you know, it's not really the world out there, but something's wrong in here. All this self-pity. Well, we can sometimes just fall into kind of a despair or helplessness and just feel that agitation and that anxiety and kind of collapse around that. You know, all these different ways that we have that aren't actually so fruitful. They're not so helpful. Certainly, it's helpful to see them, and we need to recognize and see what, what we're actually, how we are actually being in ourselves, but also to see that these strategies aren't very helpful for finding the happiness and the peace and the ease that we're really longing for. And if we continue to play out of those, with those strategies, we're again on the wheel. We're just like the rat in the wheel. We're just going round and round and round. And it can seem like there's no way out. There's this wonderful um, Nasruddin. Nasruddin, this is this crazy Sufi um, master uh, from the probably around the 15th century or so. A lot of stories about Nasruddin. And this one, Mala Nasruddin, says, is both a fool and a wise man. He was out one day in his garden sprinkling breadcrumbs around the flower beds. A neighbor came by and asked, Mala, why are you doing that? And Nasruddin answered, Oh, I do it to keep the tigers away. And the neighbor said, But there aren't any tigers within thousands of miles of here. And Nasruddin replied, Effective, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
And, you know, that's sort of like we think our strategies are working somehow. You know? <laughs> somehow we think we're keeping, keeping the suffering away, you know, or keeping the pain away. But, you know, but in the heart of our hearts, we know that's not true, you know, because we may have this default position where we keep falling into states of despair or states of depression or states of, 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 of fear. And then our strategies come back. We kind of get it together again. We pull ourselves together. And then for a while it works. And then we may fall into that default again. So how, so finding this way out. I've spent, many of you know that I've spent a lot of time in India. And um, this, of course, was my playground to find out uh, my strategies because there is just so much pain everywhere. I mean, there's beauty and the most, the the, the extremes, the most uh, exquisite beauty that is even possible, but also the most despairing pain. It's all out, you know, there's nothing compartmentalized, there's nothing hidden, it's all out for view. And so for myself, when I first went uh, about 25 years ago, I had been pretty um, protected and lived a very kind of insulated life. I hadn't really seen very much at all and uh, walked in to India and it was just kind of in my face and I had already been practicing the Dharma for about oh, 10 years. And I just, it just threw me for a loop. It just completely destabilized me. And I just saw all this, uh, of all the, my strategies for trying to get it out, like get rid of it, push it away, somehow push it out of my consciousness so I wouldn't have to face all the things that I was seeing. There was uh, one night, I think it was probably my second trip. I was going every year for a while because I was teaching uh, meditation over there. And um, one, I remember this, there's sort of a symbolic night where I was in a a small um, hostel lodge where I was sleeping. And um, next, well, it seemed like two feet away from me, but I'm sure it was a little bit further but it's the next building was a temple. And um, in the night, there was just this temple bell going out, going off most of the night. Just this clang, 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 clang. And, and I just, you know, it was because they ring, temp- they ring temple bells, you know, a, a lot of the time and through the night. And, you know, and I had been feeling, you know, all this kind of pent up kind of, restlessness and kind of un, you know, un- instability and agitation from you know, all that I had been impressed upon over some weeks. And then this bell is just going clang, 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 clang. And I was just ready to, I mean, where could I go? You know, I didn't have anywhere to go. I, I couldn't just like get in my car and you know, <laughs> drive home, <laughs> you know. I was in uh, Varanasi, you know, in the, on the Ganges River in North India. And um, I, I just, I, I, it was really a moment where there was nothing I could do but just feel how much pain I was in. I was just stuck, you know, trapped in this pain. 
with his bell, just like right next to my bed, you know, just going clang, 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 clang. You know? And you know, it's sort of I say that because there's these times where we 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 can't escape, you know. We have we we it can seem like we can find all kinds of ways to get away, but there's a point when we just have to face it. And if we have the Dhamma teachings, if we have these teachings that say there is a way, you know, there is a way to be free, there is a way to be at ease, there is a way to not have to be in that, um, that bundle of dukkha, then it gives some faith, it gives some hope, it gives a way out. So this freedom, the freedom that the Buddha is speaking about comes from transforming our relationship to the conditions that are painful. Because we know that we cannot get away from them. Perhaps we can get away from them for a little while. You know, we do. It's not like there's all all dukkha. It's, as I've been saying, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's like it's both. So we have breaks. And I think it was Ajahn Buddhadasa that said, one of these uh, wonderful masters in um, um, Thailand, who said, um, if we didn't naturally have those moments of pause, those moments where we just did have some downtime and we were able to breathe and look at the sky and listen to the birds, we would all go crazy. (laughs) But fortunately, those moments are built into our human nature, our human condition. It's not just one big block of sorrow. So, so, So we naturally have these times of pause through the day, even if they're not as many as we would like. You know, whenever I talk about the pause, I'm always aware that the Coca Cola stole that slogan, you know that um, uh, it's the pause that refreshes, right? That's the Coca-Cola slogan. (laughs) It's the pause that refreshes. And it is the pause that refreshes. And that's what we're trying to find is that pause. (laughs) You know, how can we we, we, just stop and slow down and just kind of take that breath because that's what we need in our human condition, in this worldly condition. So the whole of the practice is about how to transform our relationship to the way things are so that we're not continuing to be caught in this struggle, be caught in this these strategies of pushing away, pushing away that which is painful and grabbing on to that which is sensually pleasurable, which is the push and the pull and the push and the pull, the attachment to what feels good and the rejection of what doesn't feel good. We're caught in that back and forth, these two primary movements of the mind, attachment and aversion, which are two sides, as Allison mentioned, the two sides of grasping or clinging, which is the cause of the suffering. 
when we attach and when we reject, when we this, this aversive, hateful attitude of mind comes up and says, not that, whatever that is, whatever that fits that bill, you know, whether it's a person or a situation or ourselves, our mind, our body, um, uh, the worldly situation, anything, when we say, not that. And there's that kind of aggression in the mind, whether it's that way, something externally, or this way, something internally. That's a very painful condition. And then the holding on, the grasping on to, for dear life, to what we think is really going to bring that, that satisfaction and that happiness and that uh, joy in our lives. And we're just holding on to it and so afraid it's going to go away. And even when I do it, I just feel all the contraction in my body. I feel the contraction of wanting that beautiful thing to stay and getting rid of that horrible thing. And it's like I already feel completely jangled. (laughs) And it's sort of like that's so much of our condition is just being caught in that way of being, whatever it is, whatever we're reacting to. So whether the reaction is to the grabbing and holding of something beautiful or the pushing away of something unbeautiful, I'm so caught in that. So all of the teachings, because of the second noble truth, is pointing to that cause. This is the cause of our, of our pain and our sorrow. The third noble truth is that there is a way out of that. We don't have to live in that condition. And so all of the teachings are pointing to ways both to practice understanding how to come to become free of that condition, but also all the teachings and the, uh, uh, the inspiration that helps us continue to, to walk the path to that release, to that freedom. So we're, all of it is pointing to just that primary condition of attachment and aversion, the way that actually plays out within our mind. One of the key insights that helps us let go of our attachment and our aversion is one that Alison mentioned last night, that one of seeing into the impermanent nature of all things, that anicca, it's called anicca, that all things, all conditioned things, arise and pass away. That everything that comes into being dies away, fades away. That nothing lasts. All things that are born die away. And whether it's our body and this, our, our, our human life, or whether it's um, a sweater that is starting to have holes in the... In, in, in the elbows and you know, starting to unravel or you know, whether it's a glass of water that gets drunk and then the water glass becomes empty, whether it's the morning and the night that changes and whether it's our food on our plate. And I don't know about you, but when I do longer retreats, I just sort of watch the, you know, my beautiful plate of food that's just... I mean, I, I like food, you know, and I just, you know, some t- the food on retreats is sometimes so good. And I sort of watch it disappear off my plate, you know. 
<laughs> just like, not yet, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> or sometimes if they have a cookie or something, you know, and you're just, what do you get, three bites, you know, and it's gone. <laughs> Where's the lasting, the lasting satisfaction, you know? <laughs> It just, things are just, you know, continuing to appear and then disappear, you know? Whether it's a good meditation or a blissful state or a nice mind state, you know? It's like, well, the morning was good, but the afternoon was pretty crappy, you know? It's like, you know, and I didn't sleep well last night, but the night before I did sleep well, and I'm really grouchy today, but yesterday I was really calm. And, you know, just this constant change. And so one of the key insights into the letting go, the way that we hold on or reject things, is seeing the impermanent nature. This is one of the characteristics of conditioned life. It's inherent. It is a truth. It's called a truth of existence, that all things arise and pass away. There's also another key insight or what what in some ways is one of the more radical insights of the Buddha that when we understand it really can help us begin to not only see our experience more clearly but also help release the reactivity to what it is that we're actually uh, experiencing. And this is the insight into, first I'll give you the fancy name the fancy name is the chain of dependent origination. And it's one of those that people go, what? <laughs> what does that mean? But uh, in, a, in a very simple way, this particular link, it, there's, there's in, in the ex- expanded teaching, there are 12 links, like a chain. 12 links. And in the first four links, If we actually have insight into what's arising, it's possible to liberate ourselves from the reactivity. And the way it goes is that we see that in every moment what arises are six experiences. There's the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the smells and then the touch or the bodily sensations. And did I say... Sight? Yeah, sight. 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 (laughs) Oh, I thought she were going, I thought she were going eyes. (laughs) I thought she were, I thought she were cueing me. (laughs) She's going like this. (laughs) So, 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 sight, (laughs) smell, hearing, taste, and then the touch on the skin. Those are the the five senses of the way that we actually experience life through those five senses. And then the thoughts about them, the mental activity about those five senses. That's all that's ever really happening when you break it down. These five sensual experiences and then our thoughts about them. And the thoughts can organize themselves to create a sense of the past experiences, the present experiences, and the future ones that we imagine. And that's really sort of what happens through the mind. And what's arising in, with those six 
sense, those six sense experiences is consciousness, it's awareness. So there's awareness that knows those six sense experiences. So we know a sight, we know a smell, we know a taste when we eat our lunch. We know when a thought arises or an image arises because there's consciousness that's arising at the same time. We call that contact. So six, those six sense bases, consciousness, and contact. So when they come together, when consciousness actually is in contact with that sight, lots of times there isn't consciousness or contact. We don't even know because we're spaced out or we're lost. But when consciousness arises with one of those, we're conscious and there's contact, the next thing that arises, the next link that arises, is a feeling tone, which is called Vedna. And the feeling tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's kind of neutral in between. So we've got those consciousness, the six sense experiences, and feeling tone, all arising in a moment. And when you pay attention, you can actually see this. In every moment, there's a a Vedana, there's a feeling tone. So sometimes when I'm walking outside and the the dew is quite strong, we might smell the the bay, um, the leaves, and that's pleasant. It's a smell, it's a pleasant feeling. Mmm, I love it. And then the coolness on my face of the cool air in the morning, it's pleasant, refreshing. You know, and then taking that breath, and then if I'm doing a little faster walk and breathing deeply, it's very pleasant. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's some birds or seeing birds or wildflowers in the grass and some dew on the grass. And, ah, you know, it's just so pleasant. Sometimes not so pleasant. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, sitting, contact with the bodily sensations, unpleasant, aching, itching, restless, you know, all that. Mental formations going off, agitated, unpleasant, unpleasant. So in a bare, a bare experience before there's any reaction, This is still, there hasn't been any reaction yet. We're just the bare noticing, ah, pleasant, unpleasant, right? But you can see how easy it is to lean into the liking of the pleasant and like unpleasant and really want to reject it. And so what the Buddha saw, and this was his real radical insight, is that how quickly that happens how quickly the mind moves into reactivity, either through the grasping, the grasping onto what's pleasant, or the rejecting and, 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 and not wanting, not liking that which is unpleasant. And this is what gives rise, as soon as that, so the reaction is the clinging, is, the, is first the craving, for wanting that or not wanting that, then the clinging, which is the attaching onto it, and then the becoming. It starts to live. It starts to get reinforced. It starts to become something. But in its bare elemental form, it's just a sight or a smell or a taste or a 
sight or a thought. It's just these momentary arising experiences. And if we can leave them where they are, there's no problem. The beautiful things come and they go. The unbeautiful things come and they go. And if I can just stay present, then I become engaged with this flow of experience, this changing flow of experience. There's no problem. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes kind of neither, neutral, kind of indifferent, don't really care. You know, just leave it because in every moment it's going to change. And if you, if when your concentration gets very uh, refined, and particularly like on long retreats, I've done many long retreats, it's possible just to see this change like, a, like the stars in the night, just the twinkling stars in the night. They're just going very fast, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, very, very fast, changing experience. And our job is just to be conscious, just to be conscious for this changing experience. So the radical insight of the Buddha, and it's so fundamental to the practice, is to see if we can pay attention to the moment when the clinging arises, when we either want it or don't want it, which is different, I want to point out, it's different than liking or not liking. It's natural it's totally natural that we're going to have things we like and things we don't like. It's just human. That's not the problem. I, I don't like strawberry ice cream. You know, I've, I've said this before. <laughs> you know, even if there's strawberry ice cream right in front of me and it's the only ice cream I'm going to see, <laughs> and it's the only ice cream I'm going to see for a week, I still won't eat it. I don't like strawberry ice cream. I don't have any aversion. There's no reaction to it. It's just the way it is. It's just, you know, not liking. Feeling tone, unpleasant. (laughs) Or actually kind of neutral. It's not even unpleasant. But there's no reaction to it, you know. Or I like somebody, you know, and it's really nice to be in the presence of that person. There's no, like, I got to be in the presence of that person. You know, it's just like that person comes and that person goes, you know. (laughs) When that person shows up, it's really nice when they're there. And when they leave, that's fine too, you know. It's just a a very natural and human uh, to feel the movement of that heart towards our, we call preferences, you know, the things that we like and the things we don't like. So that's not even the problem. The problem is in the wanting. That's, it, it starts to elevate into, I want this already. I've got to have it. It's got to be like this or not. It can't be like that. And then we kind of become, we arrive into this person who is very demanding and controlling and reactive and needs things to be a certain way. And we can feel it. It's like we, we become a person you know, who is this way, manifesting this way. Not so flowing, not so easygoing, not so kind of, you know, that that way of being 
going with the flow, going with the flow. Some of you have heard this uh, 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 teaching from the Buddha. It's called the dart or the two arrows. And I like to read it because I think it's really one of the most um, pointed teachings for us in terms of the release of our uh, suffering. It's from the uh, text, a book called the Samyutta Nikaya, which is a collection of the Buddha's uh, teachings. And so the Buddha asks, what's the difference between the unenlightened disciple and the noble enlightened one? Which is, you know, a great question (laughs) to even, even start with. And the Buddha says, both experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So what's the difference? And then he goes on to say, when an unenlightened disciple encounters unpleasant feelings, in this case, in the body, he grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, and becomes distraught. He experiences two kinds of painful feelings, one in the body and one in the mind. It's as if an archer, after firing one arrow into a certain person, were then to fire a second arrow, that person would experience pain from both arrows. He experiences two kinds of pain, one in the body and one in the mind. When a noble one encounters unpleasant feeling, she, in this case, the noble one is she, she neither grieves, laments, nor wails, nor beats her chest, nor becomes distraught. She experiences one kind of painful feeling, painful feeling in the body. Just as if an archer, having shot one arrow into a certain person, were to shoot a second arrow, but miss the mark, that person would experience pain only from one arrow. She experiences pain in the body, but not in the mind. I just think that's such a telling teaching because, again, it shows that it's not that the pain goes away in a noble, enlightened person. There's still painful feeling. There's still unpleasant sensation, vedana. What changes is one's relationship to that feeling, that one is no longer Grieving and lamenting and wailing and beating one's chest, you're just saying, it's just unpleasant and I don't like it. It becomes really simple when we're able to sit with the unpleasantness and just feel that because it's going to change. In the bare elemental condition, nothing stays the same. And that unpleasant feeling will change to a pleasant feeling because that's the way things are. It may not be in our timeline. It may not go according to our own agenda about how that, when that change happens or how things shift. But at least we're not shooting the second arrow. And that's what happens. We shoot that second arrow through not liking the way things are and wanting it to be different and going into the struggle, going into the the manipulating kind of strategies where we think 
that's going to help without really seeing that we're just reinforcing the very thing that we're trying to get away from. The difficulty, though, is we don't only shoot the second arrow, right? (laughs) (laughs) We have a whole bag there. And we just keep pulling them out, you know. You know, one of these are going to stop the pain, <laughs> you know. And we just keep shooting the arrow thinking that somehow that pain is going to stop. <laughs> when are we going to get it, you know, that we're doing it? We're doing it. We're shooting the arrows. And so we're so, part of it is like waking up to what we're doing, What am I doing? We keep thinking somebody else is shooting them at us. (laughs) And then we have to duck, you know, or kind of hide. But nobody else is doing it to us. And at some point, we recognize that we're carrying the bag and the bow. (laughs) And we put it down. We stop doing it. And this becomes the stopping, one level, one layer of the stopping. When I was lying there on the bed, when the temple bells were going off, you know, I was reflecting on this tonight, you know, it was really, really, really unpleasant. But there were lots of layers. I was shooting a lot of arrows, too. But there was a, 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 a place where I wasn't shooting the arrows where I was able to just kind of lie there in that despair and that pain and know there was nothing I could do. And so even in the knowing at that point there was nothing I could do, I stopped. Because when we don't recognize that, we keep running and we keep running and we keep looking for the next thing. This will do it, that will do it. This, this, this piece of food or this drink or this cigarette or this person or if I go to this dance or if I turn on the TV or if I get out of the house. It's like something's going to do it. And sometimes we just have to stop. We just have to stop. And that can be the hardest thing to do. That's the hardest thing to do. And I'm not... T- and I'm not making light of that. I'm not saying that we'll just stop, you know, just stop. Because we know that's, that's not possible. But at maybe somewhere we can stop. Somehow we can stop the layering. Stop putting more and more and more on top of our already very big bundle of dukkha. Just stop. Stop putting it on. Stop doing those same things over and over and over again. There may be a way we start to feel the lessening of our burden, the, the, the shifting. Rather than adding and adding and adding, we start to feel some things dropping away. We start to feel the, the lightening of our load. And that's actually what happens on the path. I think it was Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, who said that the path it was kind of a an, um, an upside-down U. So if you imagine, if you visualize an upside-down U, 
he said the, the path is really, at the, when you start, you're at the bottom of one side, and you're going up and up and up and up and up this side of the, of the, of the hill, of the U. And it's a lot of effort to get up. You're just pushing and efforting and striving, you know, to get to the top of that uh, U. And you're a lot of work to get up there. And then you're at the top, but you keep going. And as you keep going, you start coming down. <laughs> and you just sort of slide down <laughs> the other side. It doesn't require very much work at all. It's rather effortless. And it's really kind of like that. And yet that one side of the path can take so much work and effort that we might give up. We say, no, it's not worth it. I can't do it. It's just too much. And we might just fall into despair and, you know, that might be it. But if we can just keep going and keep going and keep going, we'll get to the top. But it's not the end. Sometimes we think that the top is the end and then there's nothing else we have to do. But actually, we have to keep going because there's a lot more to do. And then, but it's not so hard. It's pretty effortless when we get to the other side. Not only effortless, it actually becomes somewhat joyful even though we still have a lot of work to do. But it's just easier and there's more contentment, there's more wisdom, and there's more compassion that we bring along with us. So these insights, these insights into anicca, the insight into dukkha, the way things are, that the uncontrollability of things, that if we hold on to things that are changing, we're going to suffer. Whenever we hold on or we resist or we reject those things that are changing, we're going to suffer, we're going to feel the dukkha. And if you're feeling dukkha, then you probably want to look to see what you're holding on to because they go hand in hand. If you're holding on a lot, I think it was Ajahn Chah who said this, if you're holding on a lot, there'll be a lot of dukkha. (laughs) If you hold on a little, there'll be a little dukkha. (laughs) If you don't hold on at all, there'll be no dukkha. So we want to get a sense of what what is it that I'm holding on to? That's the question. That's the one we want to keep asking. Because as we have the insight, the insight into the anicca, the impermanence, insight into dukkha, begin to see the the insight into, the third insight is the insight into the selfless nature or anatta. These are the three characteristics. Anatta, which means that things are not so personal. It's not just me and mine and I, but there's a, Uh, something much bigger happening here, you know, but yet we take things so personally and things seem to be so solid and rigid and fixed. But we start to see when we see the changing nature and we begin to let go, see things are happening, but it's not just about me. That's the, again, the, the, the coming back to what the Dalai Lama was teaching, that altruistic mind where we let go of our own uh, condition, the suffering of our own condition, and we're able to then uh, 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 be, be compassionate for other people's suffering. 
to cherish other, other beings as well. And so we begin to open up into the, a more impersonal or selfless nature that is here, that is what, what this existence is about. And as we do that, that, the heart of compassion opens because we see, our eyes are open and we see the way things are. Real Khan, the uh, wonderful master and poet, said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. And that feeling of that, just want to take everybody into your arms, the arms of Kuan Yin or the arms of Avalokiteshwar, and just hold all the suffering beings because our hearts are just aching, just aching with what we see around us. I want to um, end with this story. It's, a, it's a, not too long, but it's a, not short. But it's this um, called a loving-kindness meditation for a pelican by Stephen Goodhart that I found. And I was very, I'm just very, very touched by this story. And he says, one of my most memorable rescues was a huge pelican that I came upon while vacationing in Panama City, Florida. The poor creature had half a dozen fish hooks in him and had become so tangled up in fishing lines it couldn't fly and could barely tread water. It was in pretty bad shape and obviously weak from hunger because it couldn't fish. Since it was just off a jetty, I dove in and took it in my arms. I might cry when I read it. The pelican didn't resist. It was either too weak or perhaps it sensed my good intent. It was a big bird and completely filled my arms. One of the things I most remember was how warm its great body felt next to mine. When I got the bird ashore, I began working to untangle it. Some curious people came over and I was able to borrow a knife to cut the nylon strands. A fisherman had some wire snips and I was able to cut off and remove all the embedded hooks too. Through all of this, the bird was quiet as if it knew it was being helped. As the curious people left, I just held the great bird in my arms and did metta for it, loving kindness. It's been years now since this incident, so I don't remember the exact words I used in my meditation. But as in prayer, it's the thoughts and feelings that are important, not so much the form they take. My loving mental embrace of the bird went something like this. This is... (laughs) Dear bird, may you not be afraid. May you feel safe. May you feel peace. May you feel loved and supported in your being and your life. Beloved being, I am going to cry. (laughs) Beloved being, beautiful bird, may your dear body be healed and strengthened. May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May you be happy and well. May this help I'm giving you be an open door to freedom. May your wounds heal quickly. May you gain your strength quickly. 
May you have a good and long life, beloved pelican, my friend, my winged brother. For about 10 minutes, we just sat there together, and I embraced the bird with all my heart, with a limitless and unconditional love and compassion as was within me. As I meditated in advocacy for the bird's well-being, I could feel the bird relax. Finally, it turned its head and looked at me with a look I'll never forget, a long, steady gaze that somehow seemed to speak to some deep connection beyond all concepts of man and bird. I sensed the bird's gratitude, and then I knew somehow it would be okay, and I took it back to the water's edge. The big bird took to the water with what seemed to me to be great joy. It swam around strongly, but didn't move away from where I stood. The pelican paddled back close to me and gave me one last long look. Then it paddled off to join some mates. My heart soared when, after some more rest, it took to the air and flew down the coast. My loving kindness went with it. Dear great bird, may your wounds heal. May your needs be met. May you be safe from hooks and harm. May you have a great life. May we someday meet again. Let's just sit for a few minutes together. May you not be afraid. May you feel safe. May you feel peace. May you feel loved and supported in your being and your life. May your dear body be healed and strengthened. May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May you be happy. May you be well. <clears throat> 